may be seated, and let's turn together in our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 10 this evening. Excuse me, as we continue our study in the book of Proverbs together, chapters 1 through 9 that we've looked at together so far mainly were in a lot of ways a introduction in God's way of sort of whetting our appetite uh, of the importance of wisdom uh, to how to live wisely, how to live well, and really that is what wisdom is. It's the ability not necessarily to have a bunch of knowledge accumulated in our heads, facts, and information, but it's the ability to live skillfully in our choices, in our relationships, in the way that we handle our affairs, our responsibilities, our stewardships, the way that we speak, as we're going to see tonight, at times the way that we don't speak, uh, the way that we simply navigate our journey here on this earth. Wisdom is something that is very, very valuable. And the Holy Spirit has spent nine chapters sort of just kind of emphasizing that before we come to chapter 10, where we now start to really get into what we know more as these proverbs, these short kind of clever uh, statements in concise uh, manner. They're either compare, uh, comparative statements or they're contrasting statements, but they're meant to be spoken in a way where they give to us a little nugget of wisdom that can easily be remembered or retained so that we can live it out or maybe recall it as we're walking out our journey so that as the Bible tells us in the New Testament that we can walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, and that we can take advantage of the value that God gives to us of living in a way where we live wisely rather than foolishly, and we end up experiencing God's best, and we avoid a lot of regrets and problems, and life indeed has enough challenges and hassles and problems and heartaches. I don't know about you, but I don't want to add more self-inflicted trials into my life. I don't want to add more problems unnecessarily because of just bad choices or poor reasoning or uh, mistaken, foolish, uh, you know, ways that I handled events when God has given to us the wisdom of his word. And again, uh, it's often been said many times before, but it's very interesting that in a book of wisdom that God has, in a sense, allowed us to have this Old Testament book in 31 chapters, uh, and there are typically 30 to 31 days in a month. And so if you're ever looking for a good thing to incorporate in your Bible reading time, a lot of times what people will do, I've done it numerous times over the years, is just whatever day of the week it is, you read that chapter of Proverbs. Maybe in addition to whatever else you may be reading, if you're reading through a particular book of the Bible. Uh, It's kind of just a great way to just sow wisdom into your mind, and maybe you're reading through Matthew, maybe you're reading through Genesis or whatever, but just maybe every day when it's the 10th, you read chapter 10. When it's the 12th, you read chapter 12. And just to utilize the book of Proverbs as a daily dose of God's wisdom, which we all need, and especially as this world gets crazier and darker and more difficult, we need to be truly, as Jesus said, wise as serpents and gentle as doves at the same time. And so lots of great wisdom God has given to us here. He spent nine chapters telling us wisdom is so important and valuable and beneficial. He's talked about it being more valuable than gold and silver, and has just showed us how we want to listen to the voice of wisdom and enter into relationship with wisdom to be a life companion to help us. And now as we come to chapter 10, He truly begins to give to us these nuggets of wisdom, these proverbs of Solomon, but no doubt, of course, we know they came of the Holy Spirit, ultimately, because remember, we saw that Solomon, when he asked for wisdom, it says the Lord gave him wisdom. We saw at the beginning of our study in the book of Proverbs, it says there, that is the Lord who gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So wisdom is a, it's a gift from the Lord. It's a supernatural gifting from the Lord. Do we acquire some wisdom with life experience? Yes, absolutely. There is a degree of natural wisdom that we all attain just the longer we live on this earth, right? And you you navigate life, you learn things, you make mistakes, trial and error, and the older you live and the more experience you get, you obtain a little bit more life wisdom, common sense. But true spiritual wisdom is something that is a supernatural impartation from God himself. And the wonderful thing is we can be young and have great wisdom because it's given to us from the Lord, from his Holy Spirit, and from the word of God. We can be greatly educated and not have to be an educated person who lives like an absolute fool. 
in our everyday life because God can give wisdom and connection to that great intelligence and that great intellect. And so you can be very smart and be very wise at the same time. Or you can be completely uneducated and have very little uh, education or very little uh, intelligence from a human standpoint and yet be a very wise person and do life well because it is something that is a gift from the Lord. And here God gives to us these remaining 21 chapters all types of wonderful little nuggets of wisdom, we now begin to go through them. And each one of them certainly could be a sermon in and of themselves, could be a devotional thought to just take and kind of develop a little bit. So we'll start working our way through them. And some of them maybe we'll highlight a little bit more extensively. Other ones will kind of just let them speak for themselves and encourage you if one particularly comes to heart you know, in your life in a way where the Holy Spirit puts his finger on your heart with it, then I encourage you to do a little extra digging and contemplating and really draw out of that by meditating upon it all the wisdom that God would have for you. So he begins chapter 10, verse 1, with these Proverbs of Solomon by telling us here that a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Now, I think any of us who are parents can fully relate to that reality that the way that a child lives has tremendous impact upon their parents, certainly because of how much they love their child. You know, I've heard that adage before that, you know, my wife's, you know, quoted that a number of times that it's like when you have a child, it's like your heart lives outside of the body the rest of your life. And so if somebody tramples on your child, it's like trampling on your heart, you know? And, and, and we understand that because of the love we have for our kids, we want to see them do well. When they do well, it blesses us. When they do not so well or they do really bad, it crushes us and it devastates our hearts and it causes us great grief and heartache. And the way that a child lives has great impact upon their parents because they love them, as well as the fact that most of us, if we're making some concerted effort to not just uh, raise our kids and keep them out of jail and keep them fed, but we're actually trying to raise good kids, that's a lot of investment. It's a lot of work, and you pour your heart into that, and you pour your labors into that, and so you want a good return on investment there. And nothing is more wonderful than to see the wonderful fruit but nothing is more devastating, right, that if maybe some bad choices and bad fruit come about uh, to break our hearts as parents as well after all the investments. So he says here that a wise son, he's talked a lot about the son, the younger man listening to his father. He's developed that much about that's good wisdom, that the younger generation not despise authority and despise the older generation, but actually respect the older generation and be receptive to the older generation, that that's wisdom. And here he says that a wise son makes a glad father. Nothing makes a father more proud and brings a father more pleasure than to see their son or to see their daughter, right, living well. That brings tremendous pride to a father. That's my boy. That, that's my son, that's my daughter. And it brings tremendous pride and pleasure to the father to, to see their child living wisely, making good choices, doing well in the way that they're living. And interesting, he says, and nothing breaks a mother's heart more than when she sees her son living foolishly. Isn't that interesting? The father, he takes such great pride when the children do well. And the mother, to a degree, you know, having that additional, I think, emotional connection and the tenderness and the care, nothing breaks her heart more than if her son lives foolishly or begins to recklessly live in ruinous ways and make poor choices. And it says it, it grieves the heart of a mother. But again, certainly God is showing us here in wisdom that how we live always influences those who are connected to our lives. Whether it's the son living wisely or foolishly, how we live always influences those connected to our lives. We are completely foolish if we think that we are living in a way, whether good or bad, and it's having no impact upon those who are connected to us. Because that's just a principle. God's interconnected our lives as human beings and in the relationships that we have, whether a child with their parents or the other relationships that we all have connections to. If you're living well, you're blessing people. And if you're living foolishly, you're breaking people's hearts and causing regret and pain and heartache unnecessarily because of that connection 
that they have to you. So wise living brings gladness and enjoyment to others. Foolish living makes others sad and miserable and breaks their hearts in an unfortunate way. Verse 2, he then says, treasures of wickedness profit nothing. They bring nothing of value, but righteousness delivers from death. Now, we're going to see a lot of this repetitious, the righteous, the wicked, the righteous, the wicked. Particularly notice in chapter 10, there's this almost this theme the Holy Spirit keeps running through here that we have a choice. We can live righteous, which means to live right before God and to live right in relationship with others. That's what righteous living is. It's living right in relationship with God and right before God. And it's also on the horizontal living right in relationship with other people. And we can choose to live that way or we can do the opposite of that, which is to live in rebellion to God and to live in unhealthy relationship with others. And the Bible just characterized that as just wicked. It's, it's sinful, it's just unhealthy, it's damaging personally, it's destructive relationally, and we're going to see this continual contrast, and we can choose how we live. One brings benefit and blessing and benefit, the other brings problems and heartache, and you'll notice this repetitious theme. So the first thing he says in verse 2 is that treasures of wickedness profit nothing. In other words, obtaining greater things for yourself, treasures, by wicked living, by wicked means... He says, if you obtain greater things for yourself, not in right ways, but by wicked methods, it brings no benefit ultimately. And the reason why is it just increases problems. Because if you enrich yourself or you do things to gain things for yourself and you do it in wrong, sinful, hurtful, inappropriate, unhealthy ways, you can accumulate a whole lot and gain more for yourself personally, but never is it going to benefit ultimately. Because what's going to ultimately end up happening is those wicked methods and those wicked things that were done are eventually going to catch up in time, and the consequences are going to come around, and it's just going to cause that treasure to be absolutely worthless because of all the pain and devastation that ends up coming in connection to what it took to gain that extra thing that we were going after. Now, in contrast to that, he says, but the righteous delivers from death. In other words, having courage to do the right thing, and it does take courage to do the right thing, doesn't it? Having courage to do the right thing to live the right way is always the best way to be set free from ruinous situations. If we want to protect ourselves from death and destruction and being ruined and escape problems, one of the best ways to do that is just do things righteously. Determine, look, if I'm going to do that, if it can't be done right, I'm not doing it. Or if I have to take any other turn off course than the straight and narrow doing it above reproach, I'm just, I'm not doing that because I want to keep myself delivered and freed up from problems and pain and from destruction. Verse three, he says, the Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but he casts away the desire of the wicked. Again, here's our contrast, the righteous and the wicked. Verse 3 speaks of how God takes care of the lives of those who live right before him. Those who are righteous and live right before him, God takes care of them. He faithfully sustains the righteous. He says the Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish. Remember we read in Psalm 37 when we were going through our study in the Psalms there, David speaking says, I have been young and now I'm old. And he says, one thing I know is this, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, and I've never seen God's kids begging for bread. And David just understood that reality, that though the wicked may seem like they're prospering, David in Psalm 37 just kept speaking about, look, commit your way to the Lord, trust in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, rest in the Lord. And, and, and ultimately, David, through the whole psalm, keeps speaking, just keep doing the right thing. And he says, I've learned, I, David, from an older perspective, look, I was once young, I'm older now. And he says, I can say with credibility, God never abandons his children. He always takes care of them. He honors those who do what's right. He faithfully sustains the righteous. He blesses those who do right. But in contrast, notice he hinders the plans of those who choose to do what's sinful. He says he casts away, verse 3, the desire of, of the wicked. So the wicked may have desires that lead to the pursuits that they go on and the things that they do, but he says God will not bless wickedness. He can't. 
Human wickedness may prosper for a time. People can do wrong things and get ahead. And we're naive if we don't understand that. But it doesn't mean God's helping them get ahead. It doesn't mean that God is the one blessing what's happening in their life. What ultimately is going to happen, because God can't bless evil, he's holy and righteous, eventually he says that the Lord himself will cast away the desire of the wicked. In other words, ultimately, God will intervene in ways where he starts to hinder the plans of sinful paths. He disrupts the intentions of wicked people. So uh, they're just running out of time because ultimately God will allow the pursuit of evil to expire and he will frustrate their plans. He'll stop their efforts. Again, the Bible tells us God opposes or resists the proud, the arrogant but he gives grace to the humble. So here, just reminding us, always better to live right and righteous. God will sustain that. God will bless that. To do what is wicked, even the very desires to obtain things, he says, if your desires are wicked and your pursuits are wicked, he says, you're going to lead to that being something that God just, he casts the whole thing away. He just disrupts it and brings it to an end. Verse four, he says, and he who has a slack hand becomes poor but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And he who gathers in summer is a wise son, and he who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. So now in verses four and five, he comes back to this theme, and it will be a repeated theme. Certain themes are repeated all throughout the book of Proverbs as God's giving us wisdom. And this is definitely one of the repetitious themes. The the uh, the, the testimony that God makes strongly against the error and the foolishness of lazy, unproductive, irresponsible living. And many, many times we see God giving reproofs against laziness and God commending and encouraging diligence and faithfulness and hard work and being productive. And here we see this theme here, verse 4, where he says, he who has a slack hand, that is the idea is we call people a slacker, right? You're slacking off. That is, their, their hand is not taking care of what they should be doing. They're not putting their hand to the work. They're not handling things productively and responsibly. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent, contrast, makes rich or enriches. So take notice. In other words, the Bible is indicating very clearly again here in verse 4, it is a choice to become lazy or to be diligent. You know, I read a business devotional thing every Wednesday night or every Wednesday morning from the book of Proverbs, and I send it out to a, a group of guys. I try and take a verse and, and then kind of from it just, you know, give some business thoughts just as a devotional to encourage some guys. And the one I wrote this morning had a lot to do with this very same subject. And part of what I remember writing in there was saying that, look, not everybody's blessed with the privilege to have the same skill level. We don't all have the same amount of talent or experience or expertise or skills, right? Uh, just, it is what it is. Some people have more talent in their little finger than I have in my entire body. Some people are very skilled. They're very talented, right? And we can't control that. Some people have way more experience. Some of that we can't control, but what we can control is our willingness to work and our willingness to put in the work. And if need be, outwork even someone who's more talented to us and to make up through our work effort and our work ethic the talent maybe we don't have or the experience that we're lacking. And again, why? Because that's a choice. That's something we do have control over. We have control over whether we're going to be diligent and hardworking or whether we're going to be lazy and irresponsible. And here God is speaking to us about that thing. He says it's a choice to be lazy, to be careless and unproductive, which typically then lends itself to being irresponsible, or we can be diligent, which means to be hardworking and to be productive and to be responsible in our assignments. And those who will not work as they could or as they should, he says here, it lends itself to them becoming poor. That is them not having what they need. And again, this isn't an issue of someone's working hard, the working poor, and they're putting in effort, and they are being diligent, but they're just struggling to, to maintain or to get ahead. That's not what this is referring to. The New Testament speaks of the error of those who will not work. And Paul says, here, I've got a cure for that from the leading of the Holy Spirit. If they don't work, if they won't work, they don't eat. 
after a meal or two, see if they have a different thought about whether they should get a job. And could you imagine if we employed that today? And again, the Bible doesn't say if you can't work. If someone can't work, that's a whole other issue. There needs to be compassion and help and assistance and to do what we can, maybe because of a, a health issue or a legitimate situation where someone can't work. The Bible speaks about those who will not work, not those who can't. Those who will not work, it's a choice, and they're choosing laziness and unproductiveness. And he says those who do that, sadly, they'll end up not having what they need. They'll end up suffering lack because they did not put in the work that they could or should have because of just laziness or being unproductive and careless in attitude. But he says those who employ proper effort and are willing to be diligent, the hand of the diligent, the contrast, makes rich. In other words, those who employ proper effort not only supply their own needs responsibly, but even more than that, they often can prosper. So diligence not only lends itself to just being personally responsible, but it actually enhances the opportunity diligence does to actually prosper, to be enriched and to get ahead in a better way. Verse 5, it's almost as if he draws a picture of that. He says, he who gathers in summer is a wise son, and he who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. So notice, a wise person understands what to do in each season to act accordingly. So the wise person realizes, hey, wait a minute, it is time to be harvesting, to be gathering. Now's the time to work. Now's the occasion to embrace the opportunity. So the wise person understands what to do in each season. They act accordingly. They don't miss opportunities. They embrace them and they work. And he says here, verse five, they prepare accordingly and they capitalize on occasions to get in head. And this is what he's describing here, gathering in summer, getting prepared, what for winter. So that's the idea there. The wise person gathers, they prepare, they think ahead, they capitalize on occasions to prepare accordingly, where the contrast, verse 5, of the foolish person, they end up being ashamed and struggling because he says here in verse 5, they liked rest just a little too much. Nothing wrong with resting when it's necessary, but the foolish person, he says, because of a laziness in spirit, they will struggle because they weren't motivated. They enjoyed sleeping too much. There was just a lack of motivation. And look, unmotivated people end up being ashamed because they miss opportunities, because they end up struggling unnecessarily, where wisdom encourages us, look, don't be unmotivated. Be someone who recognizes responsibility and remain alert and aware of the situation. Pay attention to the seasons you're in and put in the effort when the opportunity needs to be put in. And summer doesn't last forever, but right? Maybe there's a season where you got to be a little bit more diligent. And maybe you're in that season right now. And maybe there, there are times life comes in seasons. You know, there were seasons where one job in my household, it wasn't enough for me. It just wasn't. And, and it was necessary to take into consideration where we were at and in our situation, you know, trying to keep mom home. And, this, and, and there were times where you just had to take, hey, it's got to get out in another field and do a little bit more. And, and sometimes for seasons, we got to be a little more diligent and do what we got to do and, and make necessary provision. And if we're unmotivated and we're, in a sense, giving in to laziness, that can be something that really backfires on us where we then find ourselves struggling in ways and we find ourselves ashamed because we kind of were enjoying a little bit too much recreation rather than productivity. And God always blesses and honors productivity, and here he's giving us that exhortation. It's wise to know the season, to be productive, to not give in to an unmotivated spirit. He says, verse 6, blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. So the one who lives righteous make themselves, notice, a candidate for God's blessing. I like that. On the head of the righteous. In other words, when we live right before God, we have that encouragement that, that grace is going to be poured upon us. God's going to favor our life. God wants to bless right living where the wicked person reveals their hurtful words are really only being used to serve themselves. The, the, the violence of their mouth. Again, God does not like to reward people who are destroying the lives of others. And so he says, those who are living right, I want to bless, I want to put favor upon them, 
Those who are violent and seeking to hurt and wound others, he says, uh, they're not those who I want to reward if they're just going to harm other people. Now, verse 7 is very picturesque, what he declares here. Look at it. He says, verse 7, the memory of the righteous, the reputation or what they're remembered for, is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. And the idea there is exactly like it should be, like a, a piece of rotting fruit or some rotting, stinking grotesque thing. And notice, those who live right before God and right among people, they're going to have an honorable reputation. He says, the name and the memory of the righteous person, the one who lives right before God and lives right among others, that person is going to be blessed. Their reputation, their testimony, when people speak about them or think about them, it's going to have a a memorable legacy that's going to inspire other people. To say, I was a good man, or you know, she was a good woman. I want to live like that. And, and there'll be this blessed remembrance of, of a life lived well like that. But he says, those who live wickedly, they'll be remembered, but only with disgust. Uh, only with a sense of disdain. The thoughts of them will always be rotten. Oh, man, do you remember him? <laughs> do you remember her? Oh, well, just, well, it was rotten. And, and kind of the exact opposite. And I guess the question to ask from a wisdom standpoint, how do you want people to think of you? Do you want people to think of you as a wise, blessed, inspiring individual? Or do you want people to think of you like a fool and a rotten person who ruined the lives and poisoned the lives of others? Hopefully the former is what we desire, to have people remember us that way when we're gone and not in their presence or to, in a sense, think of us even now. Verse 8, he then goes on to say to us there, the wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. So notice, wisdom is evident in the person, the Bible says here, and we've seen this before, that wisdom's evident in the person who has a teachable attitude. The person who is willing to be receptive to direction. He says right there, the wise in heart, What will be the demonstration of that? They will receive commands. That is, they will be someone with a teachable attitude. They're willing to receive direction, whether it's from someone in authority, a boss, a supervisor, a a parent, someone who's in a place to give them a directive or give them a command. If they're given an order or a command, they receive it. And they're willing to have an open and a receptive attitude. They're willing to have a teachable heart and to listen and to embrace that. And as a result, such people will become rewarded for doing that good thing. He says there, the wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool, the contrast, he says, will fall. So foolishness is evidenced by the exact opposite of thinking that we know everything. And he says, wisdom is displayed in a teachable heart, a receptive attitude, where foolishness is evidenced by thinking that you already know everything and refusing to learn. And and such people, he says, those people end up, look what he says, falling. That is, they end up tripping up in life continually. And sometimes, sadly, they end up falling hard in great failure. That word prating that he uses there, we don't use that very much, that word literally speaks of someone who is incessantly talking and never listening. And just someone who repeatedly is always wanting to speak, needing to speak, whether it's just nervous chatter or constant talking or that they just think that they know so much, they're always so excited to tell everybody what they know. They never stop to take the time to be quiet and listen to other people and to hear what others would say. You know, I could tell you just from a You know, calming standpoint, one of the most difficult things sometimes is those occasions where someone, whether through a phone call or, you know, in a sit-down conversation, will say, hey, can I talk to you about something? I'd like some, you know, counsel, some advice or whatever. Sure, absolutely. And and so just tell me what's going on. Then you listen to them share. And and I usually try and let people talk themselves out to make sure they hopefully get it all out. And the Bible says in Proverbs, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame. So I try and... And then you, they talk themselves out. You wait, okay, and so let me give, you ask me for some advice and input. And then you start giving a little bit of advice or input. And three sentences into it, they start talking over you again. And we're thinking, whoa, 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 whoa here. I just let you talk for 15 minutes. And you asked me for advice. 
You're seeking God's wisdom or God's counsel. And I, every time I try and give it to you, you keep like a prating fool, incessantly talking, telling me more things. And, and the problem is, is you never stop to listen. You never take the time to just be quiet and receive instruction or receive guidance. And there are many reasons that can happen in our lives. But the Bible says here that wisdom understands you actually have to stop and listen if you're going to learn, right? It's impossible to learn if we're always talking. And so sometimes there's great value in recognizing, man, there are some things I don't know, and the only way to learn is to be quiet and listen to others. So let me try and be intentional sometimes to refrain and let others speak and and listen to others and just glean from others and pay attention and in conversations not monopolize all the air in the room but sometimes just stop and let others talk i I have heard some of the most incredible words from the lord in my life by just eavesdropping on other people's conversations i tell you the truth i have there have been numerous times in my life when i genuinely know a prophetic word of the lord a word from the Spirit of God came from me eavesdropping on somebody else's conversation. And two people were talking. I just was kind of, the Bible says, he who walks with the wise grows wise. So if somebody looks wise, I'm go over and hang out around them. And then all of a sudden, they dropped some statement. I'm like, thank you, Lord, pick that up. They, that, and they got no glory because they didn't know they were speaking into my life. The Holy Spirit knew it. They got no glory, and then I got the benefit of the prophetic word from the Lord. So there's a great value. That's why God's given us, remember, one mouth and two ears. It's a parable right on our head, right? To help us understand what God wants us to do. So verse 9, he says, he who walks with integrity, that is honestly, we do things right and sincere. If we walk that way, then we walk securely. But he who perverts his ways will become known. So notice the genuine, honest person who does what's right, the Bible says, establishes a safe way of living. It is a great security system in your life to live with integrity. And integrity means you do what's right whether any human being is watching at all. Integrity understands God's always watching. God is always watching, and I should do what's right because it's the right thing to do, not just when others are there to hold me accountable. And integrity understands that. Honesty, doing the right thing, maintaining a a sincere and genuine attitude, doing what you do because it's the right thing to do. And he says, when you do that, you create a security system for yourself. You create a safe way of living. He says, he who walks with integrity walks securely. Wouldn't you like a secure life, a little more stability? I would. A little more security, a little more stability. Well, he says, here's a great starting place. Install a security system. Just walk walk with integrity, and you'll have a greater security system to your life, to your family, he says, however, in contrast to that, but the, 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 he who perverts, excuse me, verse 9, his way, that is, does what's crooked, will become known. So the contrast of that, the person who's doing perverse and crooked things will eventually become known. The idea is they'll eventually be exposed. Ultimately, God will make known the perverse, crooked things that are going on in that person's life. If they're doing crooked things behind closed doors and they're thinking they're getting away with it, you know, Jesus was very clear. He said, everything that is secret always ends up coming to light. It always gets disclosed. It's just a matter of time until our sin finds us out. The Bible tells us that. And so he says here, somebody's perverting their ways, they're doing crooked things. It's going to become known. It's going to come out. Eventually, God's going to expose it. Much better to just do what's right from the start and avoid the shame of being exposed later on as a crooked person. Verse 10, he says, he who winks with the eye, now understand on that day the winking of the eye was kind of a a cultural way that in in a con maneuver they would wink with the eye. We do it as a form of of affection today, but this is the idea here when in Proverbs we see this winking of the eye causes trouble, but you notice he comes back to this idea, but a prating fool will fall. So again, Notice the repetition of the prating fool again, the person who's incessantly speaking, never listening. Again, the Holy Spirit repeats this statement just to make sure we don't miss it. That's a slippery path. And here we see this idea of winking of the eye, kind of like a con man, and trying to manipulate or deceive people, to work people. So whether it's 
incessantly speaking like a prating fool or winking. The idea is people using behaviors as a cover-up for their manipulative intentions. And sometimes that happens, and God's saying, you got to be wise to this. you got to be wise to this. People who are manipulators, con artists, deceivers, they know how to speak in ways, and they know how to wink and do all their little mannerisms. People know how to work people. And God's saying, don't be a fool. Be wise. Pay attention. There are people that are cons, and we don't want to be naive and be taken advantage of. Verse 11, he says, the mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. So those in right relationship with God are going to speak things that bring forth life. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if we're in right relationship with the Lord and we're walking with him and the life of God is at work within us and the life of the Spirit is within us, he says the mouth of the righteous is going to become like a well of life. That is the words we're going to speak if we're in right relationship with God are going to be words that are going to basically impart life to people. They're going to be words that are going to restore life. They're going to be life-giving words where in contrast, he says the violence of the mouth covers the mouth of the wicked. So those who are living in sin, in contrast, are going to speak in ways that are going to destroy, that are going to be violent and hurtful because their heart is in an unhealthy condition. Verse 12, he says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. So those, notice, who hate, which means to despise people, those who hate and despise people, that is, they don't really value people's welfare he says they are going to be prone to being trouble starters. And one of the ways you can tell when people really don't genuinely care about others is they will be individuals who tend to like to stir up strife. There'll be individuals who are trouble starters and instigators, and they keep problems going, and they make problems get bigger, and they just tend to have a way about them, even if it's just in a one-on-one between two people relationship that everything has to end up in an argument. Everything has to be turned into this strife, and is there ever a time we can talk <laughs> without you end up turning this into an argument or strife? And he says that that's how you can tell when somebody's heart's not good, when they don't care about the welfare of people, they, and because of that, they're willing to stir up strife. Or notice he says, love in the heart covers all sins. That's a picture of Jesus, isn't it? God is love, and, and what did God do in his love? Well, he, he made a way to cover for all of our sins. God demonstrates his love and that he was willing even to be wrong, to be hurt, to be sinned against, to be wounded, and rather than expose our sin and expose our guilt, he forgave it, and he provided a covering for it. And he says, look, when love is at work in our hearts, he says, this causes us, when we care about people, to try and avoid shaming other people. We try and avoid embarrassing and shaming people publicly. Instead, we try and do things to kind of, if we could kind of, you know, be merciful to their failures and not broadcast their failures and talk about their failures and cover it up by saying, hey, would, would you pray for this brother in our little pseudo-spiritual ways? When the reality is, is maybe we could just pray for that brother and talk to God and we didn't need to talk to nobody else. And so he says here, Love covers all sins. Now, listen, please be careful and don't take a principle out of context. Again, as I said before, the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom principles. It's not a place where we should begin to build doctrine. Because when he says love covers all sins, that doesn't mean when somebody sins, we just cover over it, brush it under the rug, and dismiss it. The Bible speaks to that as well. That's wrong. Sin needs to be dealt with. Sin needs to be brought to the light. The Bible encourages us to rebuke one another and to hold one another accountable. And if certain sins, especially persistent, chronic, ongoing, habitual sin, should not be something that's just covered up and brushed aside and hidden, because it's going to come to light anyway. So God's not saying here, oh, if you love somebody, you won't deal with their sin. You'll just cover it up for them. No, 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 no. What God is saying here is that there should be an attitude of mercy trying to overlook when people sin, when they make a mistake, because we all fail, we all err at times, and that we would realize, hey, I'm a sinner as well, and I blow it, and you know what? At times, God covers me when I blow it, so let me be a little bit more merciful in spirit and not always make a bigger issue 
out of people's failures than what really needs to be made out of them. And I think sometimes we need that reminder that that's a real mature, wise way to live rather than, you know, in, in foolishness, thinking that we need to blow the horn and embarrass people all the time. We, we really shoot ourselves in our own foot at times as the body of Christ when we do that. He says, love will seek to cover sins. Wisdom, he says, verse 13, is found on the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. So notice, on the lips of the one who has understanding, you can tell they're speaking with, man, that person has great understanding. They just understand things about the Lord. They understand how life works. He says, that's a wise person, that wisdom does that. Wisdom will give people a sense of great understanding, how to live well, how to relate right with people. That's a, a mark of wisdom. But he says, the rod, that is the correctiveness, the, the punishment, is for the back of him who's devoid of understanding. The one who disregards God's wisdom is going to be of no help to others because they're always going to be taking a beating themselves. <laughs> they're always going to be living in a way where they're kind of taking a beating for their own bad choices. Verse 14, he says, wise people store up knowledge. So there, if you do like education and you want to be intelligent in regards to certain subjects, the Bible says there is some wisdom to that. Wise people, they do store up knowledge. They're, they're learners. They realize it's good to know more. It's good to learn more. Wise people do store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. Verse 15, he says, the rich man's wealth is his strong city, and the destruction of the poor is their poverty. Now, interesting statement here. The destruction of the poor is their poverty, as in contrast to the rich man's wealth is his strong city. The, the picture here is the advantage of having some excess financial reserves, right? Those who have wealth, they have excess. They have whatever you want to quantify excess as. They, they have the advantage of having some excess finances. And the Bible's saying here, like a strong fortified city, those excess financial reserves can be a great defense against attack or ruin or being destroyed. So the Bible's saying, look, it is wise to have some excess financial reserves, because it can be a great defense. It can shield you from certain things of destruction. The disadvantage, God says, is being poor, is that it's easier to be more quickly ruined than destroyed. If you're in a spot where you don't have excess finances, and even worse, you don't even have enough finances, in that situation, you are much more likely, says, to find yourself the destruction of the poor is their own poverty. There's a much greater chance that, in a sense, the disadvantage of living in a poor status is that we don't have enough. And then sometimes we end up falling apart way more quickly because we don't have anything, in a sense, to protect ourselves with any financial reserves. And look, I think God here is basically speaking of the disadvantage of living in a poor status. Now, let me say this in, 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 in balance. Here's why I think this is important, because I think sometimes, and especially as God's people, I think sometimes we romanticize the idea of being poor. Almost as if somehow, you know, if you're really spiritual or you really love God, you can't love God and mammon. And if you really love God, th then you would give everything away or you would live in poverty or you would be so about the kingdom of God. That you... And listen, we, we have to follow all of us our own callings. And there are certainly dangers. First Timothy 6 speaks about the dangers of wealth and riches and mismanagement of that. But there are also plenty of people in the word of God who God blessed, Abraham, Solomon, others in the word of God who were greatly endowed with wealth from the Lord. Deuteronomy 8 says God gives the power to create wealth, and they love God tremendously. And, and they, they recognize how to use their resources to serve God with their resources as a gift to bless and to help others. And so there's nothing, in a sense, in and of itself wrong with wealth. The Bible says it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Not money. Money's neutral. It's just the love of money. And here, it's almost as if in a balanced way, God says, look, there's nothing more spiritual about living with less or settling for a substandard living. Oh, we, we don't live like these worldly Americans. We, we live substandard. We live substandard. We struggle because we're spiritual. We trust God for everything. We're traveling, journeying missionaries. We don't need our own bills. We, don't, we serve God all over the place. 
And the reality is, you know what's the danger of that hyper-spiritual attitude? Is one little hole in your boat can lead to complete shipwreck. And then who wins? Then who wins? And here he says, look, the destruction of the poor is their own poverty. Be careful, God says. Wealth in a well-managed way can be a great advantage if you manage it properly to keep you independent and safe and sustained, and it can protect you when life difficulties come, and they do, don't they? <laughs> the medical bill, the unexpected this, the that. I mean, life is full of not just the regular bills, then all the unexpected things that happen when somebody fires at your battleship, right? And then you're trying to bail the water out and recover and keep the boat afloat. So God says here, look, there's nothing wrong with having a little excess, and it's a little bit risky to, in a sense, choose poverty or substandard living. It can lead to your own personal destruction or your family's. Verse 16, the labor of the righteous, back to the work idea here, leads to life. So as we labor in right things, it leads to life-giving beneficial things where the wages of the wicked is sin. So notice, whether we live righteously or we live wickedly, both pay. One pays with the problem of sinful, destructive living. The other benefits with life and blessing according to God's way of life. Verse 17, he says, he who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. So again, back to the same idea, to follow instruction as a way to ensure that we find and we remain on the right pathway for life, that is God's life, where in contrast, he says, those who refuse to respond to correction and don't want to be, in a sense, ever challenged or hear somebody offer a corrective thought to them, he says, the tendency is they're going to go astray. That is, they're going to go astray naturally in wrong directions. And then sadly, if they continue to refuse direction, they're just going to keep going astray further and further. And the reason is because God tried to offer correction through some loving caring, wise person in our life who said, hey, I, I think you ought to course correct there, my friend. And, and they don't want to hear it, and God says they just go further and further astray, and it boils down to either listening to and following instruction and receiving correction, God says, or being someone who's always refusing correction. And, and, and it's a sad thing when somebody gets in that condition where they just never want to hear what anyone has to say, and they can never be wrong. Everyone else can be wrong, but they can never receive correction themselves or be wrong. And God says that's a very foolish and dangerous way to live. To keep instruction, that's the pathway to life. But he says to refuse correction, that's a good way to go astray and ultimately have great problems. Verse 18, whoever hides hatred has lying lips and whoever spreads slander is a fool. So notice here, He's indicating sometimes people will hide their evil intentions towards us, especially if they dislike us. He says there are times where a person can hide their hatred with lying lips. And they can act like they like us, but when internally they actually feel completely different. So he says, look, don't always just go by the words. You've got to use discernment. Some people can be bold-faced lying, and we have to use wisdom and not be naive. He says that can be a hidden hatred in someone's words. And then he gives an important thing about speech as well. Whoever spreads slander is a fool. That's very fitting because we all have the tendency at times to do that, right? We get frustrated with another person or maybe we see something about someone else we disagree with or something happens, someone hurts us or offends us. And what do we naturally do? We've got to talk about it, right? And then we find ourselves very quickly sliding into this thing the Bible calls slander, which is speaking in destructive, ruinous ways that just defile somebody's character and ruin their testimony, and we start slandering them. And, and he says here, slander is like a cancer, just spreads. And he says here, he who spreads slander is a fool. In other words, it's something that when we do it, never ends well. It just never ends well. It just becomes a foolish path to greater problems. He speaks more about our communication and speech. Verse 19, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. What a great proverb that is. Great life lesson as it pertains to restraining our speech. 
He, he says there, understands that in the multitude of words, sin will not be lacking. In other words, that pertains to using restraint in when I speak, in what I speak, and realizing the Bible says the more we say and the longer we talk, the higher probability we're going to say something wrong or we're going to enter into sin with our mouths. And I don't know any person in this room if they weren't be honest with themselves tonight and say, well, been there, done that one, right? Or you think just if I would have stopped two sentences sooner it, or if I just... If I would have just chose to realize just because I'm thinking this, I didn't have to say that, and I could have just kept it between me and God, but again, in the multitude of words, you know, it's just a a lesson we realize that if we don't use restraint, the more we say, the longer we talk, he says, sin will not be lacking. We just raise the opportunity to be able to say something sinful and wrong, but he who restrains his lips shows wisdom. Wise people show restraint in their speech, the Bible is saying. That's a, that's a great Proverbs, a great proverb to memorize for sure. Verse 20, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver, and the heart of the wicked is worth little. So notice the picture there. The righteous person compared to the wicked person, the righteous person speaks in ways that are profitable for others. The tongue of the righteous is like choice silver. So the the words of a righteous person, when they speak or they speak to people, he says, they will actually communicate things that are profitable for people, that will enrich the lives of other people when they hear what they're saying, where wicked people, he says, in contrast, they say nothing of any real value. They may talk a lot, but it's the exact opposite. Wicked people say many things, but their words are often meaningless and not useful and are of no profit at all. He says, verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. So notice, God, he says here, verse 21, is able to use us as well in wisdom to speak words that nourish people, that that, that strengthen people. The words or the lips of the righteous feed many. So if we're a righteous person, we'll be able to speak right things that help people to become healthy and help people to be strengthened, will nourish them. But fools, he says, they ruin their own lives because of their lack of wisdom. And self-destructive people can't help other people. And so God says, be instead that person who feeds and nourishes people and helps people become stronger by speaking right things. The blessing of the Lord, verse 22, makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. So notice, again, God can indeed bless and enrich a person's life. And I think the blessing of the Lord can enrich our lives in many different ways. Certainly it applies financially, and that's true. But God can enrich our lives in lots of different ways, adding this into our life and enriching our life with that. Maybe a a relationship, a new opportunity, a better job. Again, God can bless and enrich our lives spiritually as well. And he says, here's how you can tell when it's the blessing of the Lord who makes one rich and he enriches our life by bringing a blessing into our life. Here's how you can tell it won't bring with it sorrow. That is regret, misery, and problems. Now, we understand the contrast of that. Think of many people, 1 Timothy 6 speaks about this, who in their greediness, in their love of money, enriched themselves and became rich by chasing the almighty American green dollar. And what did they do? They became incredibly wealthy, and they are full of sorrow and regret, and misery, and they enrich themselves, but because of the way they did it, or the sacrifices and compromises they made, or the corners they cut, or the family they neglected, as the result, they're wealthy, but they're full of misery and sorrow, and the money means nothing. Where he says, when God enriches a life, there's no sorrow attached to it. God enriches, and it's enjoyable. And it's something God gives, and so therefore it's a blessing, and it's handled correctly, and it's something, hey, you can, this is the Lord enriched my life because this is great. There's no regrets or misery attached to this, just joy and celebration. Verse 23 says, to do evil is like sport to a fool. That's kind of sad, like an entertaining thing to do evil. But a man of understanding has wisdom. In other words, the man of understanding realizes life's not a party. 
You know, that, that's youthful immaturity, living like life's a big party, making a sport out of doing what's wrong and crazy. But he says the wise man understands that living with understanding is much more mature and better. The fear of the wicked will come upon them, and the desire of the righteous will be granted. And when the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. So he comes back to this idea of stability again here, of the wicked and the righteous, and how the wicked builds on a good foundation, so there's stability, where the, the wicked builds on a poor foundation, excuse me, so there's instability in the whirlwind, blow, when the storm comes, everything just falls apart because there's no foundation to the life where he says the righteous person builds on a good foundation like that solid rock Jesus spoke about. And so therefore there's strength and, and, and the righteous has that everlasting foundation. And, and he describes how one of the things that can happen in that connection, verse 24, is how the wicked at times, he says, the fear of the wicked will come upon them. In other words, when someone is living wickedly and doing something wrong, or they're living in a wrong way, whether they acknowledge it or not, they are terrified that something's coming. Right? When you're living wrong, or you're cutting corners, or you're doing wrong things, you're always, oh man, I hope what I did on the books, oh, I hope that doesn't, I hope they never catch me. Or, oh man, I'm, I'm living this way, but I, I hope it never comes out. And, and there's all these terrorizing thoughts of, oh my goodness, one day what I did wrong. Is, and, and he says that the fear of the wicked, what they're afraid of, it comes crashing down upon them. Where he says the desire of the righteous who wants to honor God and do what's right, God rewards that. In time, God will reward that righteous desire because one built on stability and the other built on instability, and their life came crashing down as a result of that. Verse 26, he says, As vinegar to the teeth, which I haven't tried that, but I know this one, smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy man to those who send him. So the picture here is what the smoke do to the eyes? It's irritating, right? It's annoying and irritating. So God's saying here, when a lazy man has been sent on a mission, given an assignment, and they're lazy or they're irresponsible and they don't follow through with what they were assigned to do, he says, that's incredibly irritating, right? Someone's sent to do something, you're depending upon them to do it, they don't follow through, they're lazy and irresponsible. He says, man, that's irritating. <laughs> and, and we can all understand that. We can all understand the irritation. I mean, I was depending upon you and you didn't do it. The fear of the Lord prolongs days but the years of the wicked will be shortened. So the general idea, you live well, you live God's way, you avoid risk and problems, and typically you end up having a longer and more healthy life because you're not risking danger and harm in your life. The hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. So God honors and brings to pass the hopeful expectation of the one who's living right but the expectation of the wicked, he says, it, it fails because God can't honor a wicked way of living. The way of the Lord is strength for the upright, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity, and the righteous will never be removed. He comes back to this idea of stability again as the chapter closes, but the wicked will not inhabit the earth. So again, notice, the righteous will never be removed. There's a stability to living righteously. Again, if, if nothing else, live right so you stabilize your life. I mean, there's nothing better than just a stable life, is there? I mean, just, ah, just so nice to not have a life that's, ah, blah, 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 blah. I get motion sick so easy on, on rides. I watch the way some people live, and I think, man, you've got to be motion sick. Your life is all over the map. How can you possibly be enjoying that? And God says, just live right, and you'll find that you won't be removed. There'll be a stability. The mouth of the righteous, he says, in conclusion, brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. Again, ouch, sounds like God surgically removes those who are saying things they shouldn't. And the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. So though the mouth of the wicked only knows how to say what's perverse and crooked and defiling, I love what he says, verse 32, and perhaps ask the Holy Spirit as you live through the rest of this week, 
to apply this in wisdom for you. The lips of the righteous know what's acceptable. The lips of the righteous know what's acceptable. The Bible speaks about having a word in season for him who is weary. Lord, give me wisdom. And in given situations, help me this week, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, to know what's acceptable. Lord, to know when I should speak and when I should stop speaking. And to know in that situation, what is the acceptable thing to say in this situation to help this hurting person or to offer a word of encouragement or reproof or whatever that may be. Let's stand together.